Well, good morning once again. It's a real joy to be in the Lord's house with you all, and it's a joy now to study a little bit more of His Word. Uh, We are concluding what has turned into a four-part series of Sunday School lessons on the topic of prayer meetings and women. And today is going to be the conclusion of the work that we've done up to this point. For the introduction, I want us to look at Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64. Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64. We'll read and have a word of prayer. Now, I know that we have a lot of new faces that have not been with us throughout all of these lessons. There's going to be some time of review. There's also going to be some time for questions about this material. But I want to read with us Psalm 119, verses 57 through uh, 64. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your judgments, uh, your righteous judgments. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you that on this day we can lawfully put aside our worldly cares and activities and give attention to you, your goodness, your glory, and your word. We pray now that as we give attention to your word, you would bless us with the Holy Spirit that we might understand the things you've revealed to us, that we might turn our feet to the way of your commandments. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to go through some of this introductory material as we come to the point of the conclusion of this series of Sunday School lessons. One of the first things for us to keep in mind is that our knowledge of God and of His will comes to us, we gain this knowledge in a twofold manner. There's a twofold manner by which we gain the knowledge of God. First, mankind being made in the image of God has certain capacities to recognize the truth of God. You can think about God's truth as the sun that shines. Man, the image of God, is the mirror that perfectly reflects God's truth, or at least ought to have. We understand sin is a factor. I don't want to get into that right now. So we have these implanted capacities to recognize the truth of God when we are confronted with it. Secondly, upon encountering God's truth, when we're exposed to something that is God's truth, When we encounter God's self-revelation in nature and in Scripture, our faculties begin to operate with it. 
These faculties are the intellect, the will, and the affections. Those are the three faculties of your soul. They're not three different parts of your soul, but they're three ways that your soul operates. It thinks things, it chooses things, and it feels things. So when the soul is confronted with God's self-revelation, one, we recognize it as God's self-revelation. We recognize it as coming from God. And then two, our soul begins to operate with it. We begin to work with it. We begin to think about it. We begin to either choose or reject it. We begin to either love or hate it. This is what happens in the human soul. This is how we gain the knowledge of God and His will. If the soul is renewed by grace, if the soul has been transformed by the Spirit of God, the intellect will accept as true whatsoever God has revealed. The will will choose the things that God calls good. And the affections delight in the things God has revealed as true, good, and beautiful. Let me say that again. If the soul is renewed by grace, it accepts as true whatsoever God has revealed. It chooses the things that God says to choose. And it delights in God's ways as the most beautiful and best thing that God has revealed. You see all of these uh, reactions throughout the book of Psalms, for instance. In this lesson, we're going to appeal to all three of these faculties in a process called synthesis. We're going to appeal to all of these faculties in a process called synthesis. What we have done at this point, I'm going to review what we've gone over, but what we've done up to this point is analysis. What we've done up to this point is simply analyzed, defined, and sought to establish the things we've looked at before are and that they are this. We've sought to define them, this is what they are, and we've sought to establish that they are true. Up to this point, all we've done is analysis. We've analyzed three concepts. Uh, three concepts, and that they are indeed real concepts in the world that God has created. So far we have analyzed... congregation, prayer, and the created order. These are the three ideas that we've analyzed up to this point. Let me just make a comment here about, about what we're doing and, and how we're going about this. When I say that we've analyzed these concepts, and we're going to move into the to a process of synthesizing these concepts. This may sound perhaps abstract, rationalistic, philosophical to some, but what I'm hoping to do, especially in this lesson, is lay out for you so that you can see it working in operation 
what the confession means when it talks about good and necessary consequence. The process of good and necessary consequence is one of the primary ways that the church arrives at her doctrines and applies the doctrines of the scripture to our lives, to our churches, to our families, to the world around us. But many don't know how that process works. It looks abstract. It looks scary. He put two Greek words up here already. What's happening? This is just a normal process of how we do theology. So I'm hoping to lay that process out for you so you can see it in action. So we've analyzed these three concepts, and we're going to review these three concepts, especially for those that haven't been here prior. The congregation is a gathering of believers and their children under the authority of elders, filled with the Holy Ghost for the purpose of union and communion with God. The congregation is a gathering of believers and their children under the authority of elders, filled with the Holy Ghost for the purpose of union and communion with God. As we be, we're going to move to apply these things, this definition is critical to keep in mind. Because what we're applying our conclusion to are meetings of a congregation as a congregation. So the barbecue at Elder Schallenberger's house, though a lot of our congregation was there, though a lot of children were there, and though elders were there, and though all of us as renewed Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, that gathering was not for the purpose of union and communion with God. It was therefore not a gathering of the congregation. So that's the congregation. Prayer, now. This just comes straight out of our catechism. Prayer is the offering up of our desires in the name of Christ for things agreeable to His will by the help of the Spirit with thanksgiving and confession of our sins. Prayer is the offering up of our desires to God in the name of Christ for things agreeable to His will by the help of the Spirit with thanksgiving and confession of our sins. And then finally, the created order. The created order is the hierarchy of mankind according to the fifth commandment, providentially enacted by God for His own glory in the fulfillment of His eternal decree. That one may be the hardest one to get our heads around. So let's spend a little time camping on that one because that one's very critical to what we're doing. As we went through this process, um, we used a framework to help sort of define our concepts. And this is a framework that you find in the Confession and the theology of the Reformers. Who remembers what we call this framework that's been here? Fourfold causation. Fourfold causation. Very good. This is an idea that comes from Aristotle 
and it was adapted by the medieval church, and it was employed by the Reformed forefathers who authored the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a very powerful way to define concepts. It's a very powerful way to define concepts. One of the things that you'll find in Reformed theology that maybe sets it apart and makes it, in my opinion, the best theology, the Reformed are very careful with definitions. Defining terms is critical to thinking rightly and following God's ways rightly. So, this is a way to define things. I'll illustrate how this works briefly for those that have never been introduced to this. The example that Aristotle would use for this is a marble statue. How would you define a marble statue? Well, first, you've got to have a material cause. So the material cause of a marble statue is the raw marble. But with the raw marble, you don't have a statue yet. You've only got raw marble. So then you have to have some type of form. The marble's got to be brought into a shape. So the formal cause of the marble statue is the plan in the sculptor's head. That's the form. That's what's going to bring the marble into the form of a statue. You still don't have a statue yet, though, do you? You have a pallet of marble. You have a skilled craftsman. Now something's got to bring it together. Something has to make it happen. That's what the efficient cause is. This is the thing that makes it happen, the thing that gives it life, so to speak. Raw marble, the plan in the sculptor's head, the skill or the art of sculpting. The sculptor uses the art of making sculptures That is the efficient. That's what causes this thing to emerge. And then, of course, the final cause is the purpose for which he's doing this. This might be to adorn the Capitol building in D.C. This might be to adorn his garden. This might be for a paperweight. Whatever he's doing this for, that's his final cause. That's the reason he's doing it. By the way, just to tie this in with the sermon, we we met this word in the sermon. In Greek, this word is telos. That's the final cause of something. The purpose for which it exists. To arrive at this purpose is to be perfect. That's the word in Hebrews that we looked at. So it's to arrive at your intended purpose. That's what perfection means, at least on this scheme. So, we have this framework, and then, as I went through that definition of the created order, it sounds very wordy. Um, So, what The definition I read here, when we analyzed it earlier, we came to this definition. When we speak of the created order, we are speaking of this. The material, the raw stuff of the created order is mankind, the human family. 
the form that the created order takes is the hierarchy of the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment gives us our duties of superior, inferior, and equal. Honor your father and mother. Mom and dad are superior to you. As much as this world wants you to forget that, mom and dad are your superiors. So the form of the fifth commandment, that that hierarchy that humanity is organized in, is the form. The efficient, what makes this happen? What brings mankind into this hierarchy? It's the providence of God. God's providence is what gave you the mom that you had. God's providence is what gave you the son that you had. God's providence is what gave you everything about you that defines you today. So it's God's providence that brings mankind into this form. And of course, the final cause, the reason the created order exists is for the glory of God in the execution of His decree. The Shorter Catechism teaches us that God executes His decree in the works of creation and providence. And so God providentially brings glory to Himself by executing His decree in the created order. So this is the review so far. At this point, I want to allow, are there any questions at this point? I realize for those that have not been here for the whole series, this is like the fire hydrant being opened wide open. So are there any questions at this point before I move on? If not, please see me afterwards, send me an email. I would love to talk more about this and answer questions as there's more time. So, these are the features that we analyzed. One final thing we need to add about each one of these elements is the idea of worship. Worship is at the center of all of these ideas. Worship is the purpose of the congregation. It's the final cause. We call it union and communion with God, but another way to say that is worship. Prayer, as the confession teaches us, is a special act or a special part of religious worship. And then, of course, the created order... uh, Yeah, and the created order assigns certain roles in the various acts of worship. In other words, the congregation gathers for the purpose of worship. Prayer is a special act of religious worship. And the created order dictates for us who has certain roles in the worship of God. Okay? Here's a for instance. I know we live in the age where the stuff that we're talking about here and where this is going is very anathema to our culture. When I say the created order assigns certain roles in worship, I don't mean men get to domineer all the time. Think about this. Why are your children baptized? Hmm. 
We're not supposed to debate baptisms too much, but we can learn more about baptism. God does tell us to. That's always the right answer for, for many questions. However, I want you to think a little more deeply. Your children receive baptism. They're part of the covenant community because of their place in the created order. Because they are your children in the created order, give them the sign of the covenant. They belong to the covenant community. You see how this works? So I want you to understand this is, a, this is a holistic thing that we're talking about. Okay, so worship is an important part of all this. The synthesis that we're going to engage in today is reformational. What do I mean by that? I mean that the conclusion we're going to draw is a conclusion that is necessary for the reformation of the church today. In every age of the church, she is either closer or farther away from the will of God. Every single age you can look at the church, say they were very close to the will of God here, they were way in left field over here. Every age of the church is like this. Each age, furthermore, is closer or farther from a particular aspect of God's will. It is in correcting that particular departure from God's will that constitutes the reformation of the church in any particular age. You know the history of Luther. Luther's big act of reformation was to say what? By faith I receive the righteousness of God. That was revolutionary at his day because what did the Catholic Church teach? By works you earn righteousness with God. You see how his reformation came at the right time. In our age, it is the guiding hand of the created order in all that mankind, whether in the home, the capital, or the sanctuary, does which we have departed from. See, the the danger today in the church is not getting salvation by faith alone wrong. That's fairly clear today. The danger in the church today is our departure from the created order in all aspects of society. It is then here at this very point where the church needs reformation. Our goal as a session is to take one small step in the direction of God's commandments. And so... Let's talk about the faculties. This process of synthesis that we're going to now start engaging in, we've analyzed our parts. Now synthesis, we're going to bring them together. We're going to create a a thesis with all of them together. The process of synthesis properly belongs to the intellect. We're going to engage in a logical work here. Properly belongs to the intellect. The process is otherwise called deduction. Those of you that have studied some logic will know that word, deduction. 
where you draw out a conclusion from premises. All men are mortal. Pastor Castle is a man. Therefore, Pastor Castle is mortal. That's deduction. From our premises, we deduce the conclusion that the scriptures teach that women ought not to pray audibly in a gathering of the congregation as the congregation. Now, we're going to unpack this, but this is the conclusion that we draw from these three things. Based on the nature of a congregation, the nature of prayer, and the nature of the created order, we draw the conclusion that the scriptures teach women ought not to pray audibly in the gathered Uh, the gathering of the church, as the congregation. So here's our premises. The created order. The congregation. And prayer. Given what the created order is, and specifically the one part of the created order that's critical here, is the idea of male headship. We find male headship all throughout God's scriptures on the created order. Because of what the created order is, because of what the congregation is, specifically union and communion with God as a corporate body, and then finally, what prayer is as a special act of worship, women ought not to pray audibly in the gatherings of the congregation as a congregation. Turn with me to some scriptures. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. First Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. This is one of the famous passages that deals with this topic. And I just want to summarize briefly what this passage teaches. I'm not going to read the whole thing and analyze it in a lot of detail. But I'm simply going to summarize Paul's argument here for us. The first thing he says is that praying and prophesying in the gathering of the church, so in a congregation as we've defined it, praying and prophesying are authoritative acts. Look at what he says. Four. Um, uh, uh, 11.4. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. And so what he's saying there is that man is a symbol of authority within the church. To cover the head is a visible symbol of submission. But Paul is saying if you're going to pray and prophesy in the church, you have to uncover your head because you are symbolically authoritative in that act. So he says prayer and prophecy are authoritative. Paul then goes on to say all who do this Pray and prophesy should be uncovered. Male or female, if you're going to pray or prophesy in the church, you should do so with an uncovered head. Because praying and prophesying is an authoritative act. Paul says this in verse 5. Um, well, he doesn't say it exactly, but uh, he says, if everyone, anyone's going to do this, they should be uncovered. And then in the next part that Paul says, he says, however... It is a shame for a woman to be uncovered. The conclusion he draws, therefore women cannot do this. To pray or prophesy publicly in the church means your head needs to be uncovered. 
It is a shame for a woman to be uncovered in this way. Therefore, women should not do this. You see how the logic of his argument proceeds? He says in verse 5, if a woman's going to have her head uncovered, she might as well have her head shaved. We don't... We don't, we don't um, I know head coverings are a big debate in the church. We are not a church that advocates head coverings universally in our congregation. We allow that to be freedom of conscience in our church. We're not saying all women have to wear head coverings. But we're trying to take what Paul is saying here, that if a woman is going to pray and prophesy with her head uncovered, she might as well go all the way and shave it off. Because he'll say later on, her hair is given to her as a covering. Okay? So... Therefore, women should not do this. Pray or prophesy in the gathering of the congregation. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Verses 26 through 40. Again, not going to read the whole thing. It's a long passage. I want to summarize what Paul says. All things in the church should be done in an orderly fashion. That's like Paul's main point here. You all come into the church, you've got a song, you've got a prophecy, you've got something you want to say, you're all um, chattering and talking at the same time. Everything needs to be orderly. This is chaos. Everything should be done orderly. In the midst of him giving these orders, verse 34 especially, he says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but to be submissive, as the law also says. All things to be done in order. Women should keep silent in the church. Therefore, the silence of women in meetings of the church is orderly. For two reasons. One, the created order in general. Secondly, for the order of particular churches. For the women to keep silent in the public gatherings of the church is orderly. This is within God's order. It promotes peace, edification, and and avoids chaos. Finally, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. These are, I'm just hitting some of the very classic passages. This is one of the classic passages. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Paul writes, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Again, summarizing, not analyzing in detail. Paul, Notice what Paul says. And ladies, I want you to be encouraged by this because I know this kind of doctrine that I'm teaching can be used to bludgeon and beat down women. That's not what I'm doing with this. I want you to notice what Paul does here. First thing he says, a woman's place in the life of the church is not guiding a woman's role in the life of the church is not a role of guiding or leadership the created order proves this this is part of Paul's argument in this passage he cites the created order to prove his point just as an aside a lot of people who deal with this passage and if they don't acknowledge that Paul is arguing from the created order Adam was made first and then Eve they're, they're being dishonest with the text because it's right there in what Paul says. So, a woman's place in the church is not guiding. Creation order proves this. 
But a woman's place in the church is filling. Her role in the church is to fill it with beauty, life, children, service, good works. This is what Paul means when he says they will be saved by childbearing. Just as it was in the garden, wasn't it? God said, be fruitful and multiply. He gave Adam a wife. And then after the fall, Adam names his wife's name Eve. Why? Remember the reason? She shall be the mother of all living. Through the grace of the promise, this woman that God gave me by the grace of Jehovah will be the mother of all of those that live. She's going to fill this creation. And so Paul says this is a woman's role in the church. Now at this point, we're only dealing with the intellect. We're just trying to bring these ideas together, synthesize, and draw a solid conclusion based upon what the Word of God teaches. I think that we've done that. I think going through these passages, it helps us understand the conclusion that we've drawn. But we have two more things to cover. The will and the affections. Just a side note and and just a little bit of exhortation to you, maybe edification as well. This really ties into the sermon this morning. I think a lot of us stop right here. We stop right here as we read the Bible. We want to intellectually understand what it says. That's great. That's important. That's essential. But maturity, as we learned, is is discerning this, but then moving into this. If, If it's true, then we have a duty to choose it as true. There's a big disconnect between these two things. You often hear preachers will say things like, you may have the right doctrines in your head, but it needs to travel 12 inches and get into your heart. You ever heard anyone use that illustration? I have. It's, it's okay, but it gets the point across. This is what they're talking about. Going from the head into the heart. And that's where we're going to go now. Having established this conclusion from Scripture by way of good and necessary consequence, it remains for the will to actively choose that which God has revealed. Here then is the place of exhortation. It is God's will that this be the order in His church. I think based on the scriptures that we've looked at, it's it's clear that God has revealed this is the order He wants in His church. Male leadership, women learning in silence, This is the order he wants in his church. It is therefore good that this be the order in the church. Brothers and sisters, I know that on this topic, we are laboring against all the forces of cultural revolution and Marxism, screaming in your heads, this guy is off his rocker. He's a a bare-knuckled Neanderthal patriarch. How can he say these things right now? There's tons of cultural conditioning on these topics that we have to resist. We have to come back to the Word of God with clear eyes and humble hearts and say, what does God want? And when we discern what He wants, we have to say, this is good. I may not understand how it's good. I may not understand all the benefits that come from obeying it. I may not understand all the dangers that come from disobeying it. But if God reveals it, it is 
good. This is good for the church. It now falls to us to repent in areas we're not in line with this way of thinking. This is why I read Psalm 119, 57 through 64. Turn back with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 57, particularly through verse 60. Listen to what the psalmist says. You are my portion, O Lord. Never forget that, brothers and sisters. What we do here on the Lord's Day, what we do as Christians, is because God is our inheritance. The Lord Jehovah is the one that will inherit. In union and communion with Him forever. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your uh, testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Notice that those who truly walk with Jehovah are repenting all the time. I think sometimes we think if you're a real Christian and you're walking with Christ, that means you don't ever have to repent again. It's actually quite the opposite. David walks with Jehovah. He loves Jehovah. He goes back to the word of Jehovah and says, hmm, oh, and turns his feet into the right way. He wants to learn and grow, learn and grow, learn and grow. That's the attitude and the spirit of a Christian. That's what we need to have in these things. What this would look like. What would it mean to choose God's ways on this doctrine of the prayer meeting. Well, one of the first things it would mean, and this, you know, gentlemen, I know we're talking about ladies in the prayer meeting, but this applies to the men of the congregation and the prayer meeting. What all this means is that men need to show up at the prayer meeting. Remember what Paul says, go back to 1 Timothy, that the controversies of our day have gotten us focused on 11, uh, uh, verse 11 through the rest, but 1 Timothy 2, notice what Paul says. 1 Timothy 2.8 I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Brothers, I want to encourage you as my brothers right now. We can have all the doctrines about the role of men and women in the church or the role of men and women in society, in the family, fill in the blank. One of the primary things we can never forget, though, is that the primary emphasis on the roles of the sexes in the scriptures is that men take the lead, men take the initiative, men do the work that God has called them to do. And so we need to be in the prayer meeting praying. Paul tells us to. And I assure you, it will be good for your souls. God will bless it and quickly defeat his enemies. We need to attend the prayer meeting. We need to be engaged during the prayer meeting. We need to give thanks for the prayer meeting. We need to confess our sins related to the prayer meeting. More could be said at this point. um, But I want to move on to the affections so that we can cover our material 
in an orderly fashion. Um, we've talked about the intellect. We've talked about the will. Now we talk about the affections. That which the intellect receives as true from God's revelation and that which the will chooses as its duty based upon God's will, the affections delight in the beauty of God's character revealed therein. Remember what David says, I think it's Psalm 87, it may be 84. He says that my desire is to behold the beauty of the Lord in His tabernacle. How do you get to that point? To say the Lord's glory is beautiful. He learned the Word of God, He chose the Word of God, and He loved the God of the Word. That's what the affections do. The beauty of God's order. Just a couple of things to commend to your affections the beauty of God's order that we've looked at here. One, (laughs) harmony. Harmony is a product of order. I don't know how many of you may be musical. Some of you are, I know. And you know that in a musical composition, it's the ordering of the notes that makes it beautiful. Beethoven didn't just throw ink at the page and expect his masterpieces to come out. Bach, likewise. There's an ordering to the music that makes it beautiful. There's a harmony. Each part playing its role. There's an arrangement that is one part of beauty. There's also opportunity. Notice that what we've said in our motion is that women ought not to pray audibly in a meeting of the congregation. Just because something is not audible doesn't mean it's not authentic. You see, women should be praying at the prayer meetings. Women should be praying wholeheartedly, authentically, full of faith and hope in the promises and the glory of God. They should be praying with all of their hearts, just not audibly. Because when you add the audible, it now becomes a different thing. It becomes a more uh, leading type of thing. But God honors silent prayer in the body of the congregation. Look at a couple of passages with me. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and 16. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and 16. Paul is uh, correcting the Corinthians about the use of tongues, foreign languages, or mumbo-jumbo, whatever the case may have been. And he says in verse 15... Uh, 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, meaning with tongues, if you bless in a spiritual, um, not spiritual, but if you bless with tongues in your outward prayer, How will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? Notice what's going on in Paul's description here. Prayer is being offered publicly. There's one guy offering prayer, and if everyone else listening to him is going to say amen to that prayer, they have to understand which means they're praying along with him while the audible prayer is going on. I could start praying in Latin right now, 
And most of you would not understand what I'm saying. You therefore could not say amen at my prayer. That's Paul's point. Which implies silent prayer in a public gathering is just as authentic as audible prayer at a public gathering. Here's another great one in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. This one is more actually to the point of what we're getting at here. Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. This is the story of John the Baptist's father, Zacharias. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. The burning of incense in the temple worship was a symbol of prayer. The book of Revelation teaches us that this, the incense are the prayers of the saints. And so incense is a, is a type of prayer. Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, I think this was probably silent prayer or at least very low, if it's audible, very low prayer. You have all these Israelites at the hour of prayer gathered around the temple. The priest goes in leading the prayer with the incense into the holy place and he offers up the incense. While he's doing that, he's praying to God. The congregation is outside praying along with him at the hour of incense. And the Lord hears and sees all of it, even though they're not leading the prayer audibly. One last thing for your affections. We've seen harmony, arrangement, opportunity to pray. I want you also to recognize the battle. Battle has a beauty all of its own. There, there is something about fighting that has a, a glory and an honor to it that is unique to fighting. That's why our movies are about battles. That's why paintings that we put up are about wars and battles. Even more so when the cause is just and the Lord of battles is leading the charge. This is the battle of our day, conforming our lives to God's created order in all our actions, in the family, the state, and the church. If you want to resist this present wicked age, frame your life according to God's created order, and you will be engaging the battle. You will be fighting the good fight that God will honor and fights along with you. I said I would give you time for questions. Uh, we have five minutes for questions. I am available to talk more at, in depth, offline, so to speak. Um, questions that anybody has at this point that they feel comfortable asking. This is being recorded. This will be up on Sermon Audio so you can listen to it afterwards. The only question I got outside of the lesson time was one in one of the per first lessons, we talked about the congregation, and I used the phrase, gathering of the people under the authority of certain elders. That was a little bit confusing, I think, because it meant, so like in our church, if me and Scott 
gathered some members of the church together, is that a meeting of the congregation? No, it's not. What I meant by certain elders was particular elders. Meaning, a congregation is gathered under the authority of elders that you can identify, that you are in covenant with. You have certain elders in your life that you recognize as your shepherds. Those are the ones you gather under in a congregation. Your particular elders. Another objection that I want to try and answer that can come up with this topic is... um, Some would say that what I've just taught implies either that women are less valuable than men or that they are less capable of praying than men. That is not implied by what the scriptures teach on this or by what I have said. I mentioned earlier we have a lot of cultural conditioning to overcome. Part of that cultural conditioning is that if everybody is not allowed to do everything, then nobody is equal. That's the cultural conditioning of the day. If everybody's not allowed to do everything, then nobody is equal. That's the revolutionary cry of Marx and the French Revolution. In my family, we have several young children. They are not allowed to drive my cars because they are valuable. And I do want to honor them and protect them. They're not allowed to do this. See how this works? Hopefully you do. All right, well, if you have more questions, please see me afterwards. I'll close us in prayer, and we can enjoy the rest of our Sunday afternoon. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of your word, which is like honey to our lips. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to walk in the way of your word and to engage in the battle of our day, doing your will and rejoicing all the way to glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.